hi. <laughs> We're so natural at this. Yeah, we're doing a great job. Good start. So I am supposed to read uh, this thing, which it's too long to read. So I'm not going to actually read this, but I, I'm going to tell everybody who's listening that at the Strong Towns Academy, we have finished a new course called Aligning Transportation with a Strong Towns Approach. And let me tell you, I'm not going to read what this says. This is a whale of a course. I thought when we started out, there's going to be like six continuing ed credits. So like six hours of instruction, it is nine hours. And I don't mean it's nine hours of like me just like talking, talking, talking. These are like five to seven minute segments. So there's like 60 some different lessons in this course about, you know, building a transportation system, the strong towns way. This is ridiculously immersive. It is really, really thorough. It lines up with the book that I've got coming out in September, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. So this is like your own personal tour, like lesson guide through this book. So you read the book, the book is really good, but how do I like do this? I want to, I want a guide to bring me through. That's what this course is. So I have spent an insane amount of time putting this together and now it's all done and it's out there and you can take it right now before the book comes out. Here's what they want me to read. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the course using the code NOSTRODES, <laughs> N-O-S-T-R-O-A-D-S. Type that in. You can get 20% off, and you can get 20% off the entire eight-course Strong Downs Academy bundle with the code LEARNEVERYTHING, which that's a little bit of a stretch, but you know, learn everything that Strong Towns can teach you. Uh, <laughs> I won't say we can teach you everything, but learn everything Strong Towns has. Uh, you can get uh, access to those courses uh, as well as our free uh, Strong Towns 101 course at academy.strongtowns.org. Thanks, Abby. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upsound. everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and once again, I am joined by my friend, author, founder of Strong Towns, Chuck Marone. Welcome back, Chuck. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Abby. Nice to see you. It's going to be 80 degrees here this weekend, which... Uh, in case you are not paying attention at home, that's like 90 degrees warmer than it has been for a long time here. Good for so, you. I think yeah. we have the same weather this weekend. I'm pumped. Oh, I am pumped. I am so pumped. Yeah, I'm ready for the summer. Good vibes. <laughs> Let's bring it on. I'm already wearing shorts and I refuse to take them off until November. Yeah, I like I like your attitude. <laughs> Okay, so the article that we are covering today was published in Bloomberg, and it was written by Marie Patino, Aaron Kessler, and Sarah Holder. It is called, More Americans Are Leaving Cities, But Don't Call It an Urban Exodus. The article summarizes data from the U.S. Postal Service, uh, the changes of address and mail forwarding, and they found a couple of kind of interesting insights. The first thing is that urban exodus really only applies to New York and San Francisco, where the cost of living had previously been very high, 
and COVID caused many people to shift to remote work and governments mandated very strict lockdowns. So without work and cultural amenities tethering remote workers to their cities, it no longer made sense for people to stay in place, uh, not only from a financial perspective, but I think from a mental health perspective too. The second thing is that what we are seeing broadly is more of an urban shuffle. Despite mass moves to places like Florida and Texas, 84% of people who did move stayed close to where they lived pre-COVID. And the movers really accelerated a trend that predates the pandemic where urban cores of major metro areas are seeing a net decrease in flow while suburbs and smaller cities saw net gains. So in other words, people moved outwards to suburban areas and satellite towns. So moral of the story is that COVID didn't necessarily cause an urban exodus, but rather accelerated the existing trend away from dense urban living in certain regions towards the less dense suburbs. So from a strong town's perspective, this matters for a lot of reasons. Cities have obviously spent several decades focused on revitalization following a long era of decline and after World War II suburbanization. Moving forward, we know that the continuation of building conventional style suburbs is not fiscally sustainable and a robust urban development pattern and tax base that goes along with it is really critical for sustaining our infrastructure in the United States and probably all places, right? The, the last thing is that really the reality is that people will vote with their feet in the United States. That's just how things go. And the divestment in cities could potentially lead to further insolvency that, that Strong Towns talks about all the time. So, Chuck, I'm curious what your reaction to this article is. Um, I'm wondering if you've seen other articles that support these claims or any that conflict with these findings, and how do you perceive these insights that they are talking about? It's very interesting because it's hard to kind of talk about this without the overlay of our political discourse, right? You know, there's this narrative uh, amongst conservatives that cities are horrible, awful, godforsaken places that no one would ever want to live in. And see, this is proof that people are are leaving. There's a separate narrative about, uh, you know, that that progressives say about cities and about rural areas. Like, why would anyone move to a small town? These are a bunch of racist, you know, awful people and no one would want to live near them. If we can divorce ourselves from those narratives, which, by the way, I find both of them to be silly narratives. This is not how <laughs> people live their lives or this is not representative of, of any of these places. There's a few things that are going on that I find kind of remarkable. And I, I'm going to start with the first one, the thing that is not going on, which is that we have had this long uh, foreclosure moratorium. People have not been kicked out of their homes for not paying their mortgages. People have not been kicked out of their homes for not paying their rent. And I, I know we're having this discussion about limited housing inventory and accelerating housing prices and how you know a lot of people have been priced out of urban areas. But over the last 12 months, what we have done is we have really artificially slowed the churn of property turnover. And I, I understand why we did that. I mean, I'm not saying this was a bad policy and I'm not saying that people who, you know, couldn't pay their, their mortgage when they lost their job in the pandemic deserve to get kicked out of their house 
none of that. This is a very, uh, you know, difficult situation. But the reality is, is we've sidelined a lot, like millions and millions of units that would normally be part of like a housing churn. And what that's done is it's made like the remaining units kind of this very scarce commodity. You add into the fact that, as this article kind of suggests, the people who are moving have tended to be people who are affluent, people who have means, people who, when uh, the pandemic happened, were able to say, I'm going to transition to remote work. I'm not going to lose any income. Hey, wow, I just got $4,000 from the government. Isn't that nice? You know, like their economic situation was actually made better in many ways by the pandemic. That group has proven to be very mobile. And has basically opted to, in a sense, cash out of their urban spaces, which were very, very high, in many ways, downscale or or down price to a place that is more remote. And in doing so, actually spend less money on their part, but drive up the markets in, in those areas where they were moving. If you notice on the map, and you probably didn't look at this, but I did, Brainerd is on the map, like my little that. hometown. Okay, you did. Yep. Brainerd plus eight point three percent. We and I can attest, my neighborhood, which is like the most desirable urban neighborhood in Crow Wing County and the entire county, uh, is a very nice neighborhood. There have been like one house for sale in the last three months. There's usually a dozen homes for sale this time of year. There's nothing, nothing, and the reason is not because there aren't properties being turned over, but it's because a lot of people from the Twin Cities metropolitan area, from Minneapolis, St. Paul, have come up tied in with realtors and they're buying them before they're even listed. It seems like, and this article would suggest this, it's been a migration of the the professional, the affluent professional class with everybody else kind of stuck in a certain amount of stasis. And I think that the outstanding question you know, uh, and how this will ultimately resolve is really going to hinge on when that foreclosure moratorium comes off and what happens at that point. Is there going to be a, a huge surge in inventory on the market? Is there going to be a lot of dislocation? What are we going to see? And I, I think that's an open question. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm sorry to hear that your real estate side business is probably not doing so well. <laughs> I've had fewer houses to promote now. Um, they come on the market and they go away just like that. Yeah. Oh, so sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, I, I, th- I think it's a good point to bring up how it is the affluent remote workers who are the most mobile people. And, you know, when they move, they take their tax base with them and cities really need that tax base. I mean, like it or not, it is important to have that. And I kind of wonder how remote work will reposition urban centers in general and central business districts because the rise of hybrid and remote working is to me one of the most significant things that we've seen out of covid it not only has implications for where we live but also for how much driving we do and and how we use our personal spaces and how we interact with our families and our communities in a lot of ways, it's really good, right? Because I think for for families where there's two parents working, um, there may be some flexibility that's provided by having some kind of hybrid situation. So there's a lot of benefits that come with that. But at the same time, how remote workers will choose to position their living situations has huge implications for how cities function. 
And, you know, historically, urban centers have been the centers of commerce and employment. So I think that cities that have emphasized or overemphasized in the past on having, you know, offices and and making themselves really a place of employment where everybody works, but then everybody goes to other places to live, I think are really going to struggle in the future if, if, you know, urban centers are de-emphasized because of that. And cities that really have emphasized residential so that people actually have spaces where they can reasonably work from home adjacent to these kind of urban centers, I, I think those are the places that are going to do a lot better. Isn't this what we were promised, though? I mean, with, with the whole idea of the internet and, uh, you know, someday uh, people will be <laughs> able to, you know, work where, from wherever they want and they'll be able to be part of and And, you know, we've been doing this at Strong Towns for six years. So, like, we didn't – the idea of a pandemic did not change the way we work at all. So this is something that we've been able to do for a long time. But it's it's kind of gone mass mainstream now, and you do see. I mean, the the people that I know that are in that demographic, that working professional, that you would put in the like upper middle class of society, the professional class. I know a lot of those people, and they have chosen a, a lot of them. The ones that have moved have basically chosen to take advantage of the fact that they could now work remotely to locate closer to family who can help out with childcare, closer to the place that they always wanted to live or closer to, um, you know, someplace where they could get a little bit more space for the money. And it's one of those things where my friend Ian said this, the reason I live in the city is because I can go do all this stuff. I can be near all these things and now I can't do any of those things. And so why am I living here? You know, and, and he is one who, moved out of New York City. He still is in a place where he can go in once a week or twice a week if he needs to for his work. Um, but he's lived somewhere else now. I see a lot of that. And I, I do think that that is, it's not so much an exodus because I think that there is, in a sense, like an unlimited amount of demand to live in New York City and San Francisco. I think that the ultimate demographic settlement that ends up in these places, it's not like the buildings are going to be abandoned. They just might be occupied by poorer people or people that are, you know, slightly less affluent, uh, at least to start out with. Um, I think the interesting effect is going to be on these other places. I've long been waiting for people to discover small town life. I mean, you, you can live in, in many, many small towns, you can live car free in a nice walkable neighborhood with good schools, a uh, real safe environment, with decent restaurants and decent cultural life and be 45 minutes to an hour. I'm two hours, but I'm two hours from theater. I'm two hours from sporting events. I'm two hours from the world-class shopping. I'm two hours from an airport. These are not like heavy burdens for what you gain. And I've kind of been waiting for that to happen. And I, I, this might be the moment. Yeah, and if walkability is a big driving factor, there's so many mid-sized cities to advocate for my own city. There, there's so many great mid-sized cities that could really use the talent and they could use the people. And you know, the, I think Kansas City is a great place to live and you can have really high quality of life. 
Um, I was going to say, where is Kansas City on this map? It's not on the map. St. Louis and Kansas City are both not on the map, which is really weird to me. That is weird. So what does that mean? Not much gain or loss? Stasis? Probably not much gain or loss. I mean, I haven't noticed anybody leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just looking around, my, it doesn't seem like a lot of people have left the city. There's people all over the place. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see the data. I wonder how you could get that. You know, the, the thing that kind of concerns me about this article is just cities potentially, you know, ignoring, ignoring this kind of data and just continuing to do what they do and, and not competing well with the suburbs because the suburbs are changing. I remember reading a national ULI report from back in like 2020 January. I, I want to say 2019, but I think it was the very beginning of um, 2020. And it was talking about how young families, people who had lived in the city, were growing up, having kids, and that they were moving from urban centers to suburbs, but they weren't moving to exurbs. They weren't moving to like the conventional cul-de-sac suburbs. They were moving to walkable suburbs, like first ring suburbs. And, you know, when I see my own city, I can totally tell that these are areas that are in some of the most high demand. I mean, they're the most expensive places to live in our metro probably. And while COVID seems to have sped up this trend, it's clear that cities are really continuing to compete with suburban areas and many suburbs even far out suburbs are noticing what people want and where the market is headed. In our practice, we work with a lot of suburban governments and they're already moving towards evolving to meet demands that the new generation wants. You know, things like walkability, multimodal transportation, housing diversity. I I was actually just in my hometown of Wildwood, Missouri last week, which is an exurb of St. Louis. But I was so impressed that they had built out all this multimodal infrastructure and they've built a town center and some apartments. I mean, it's, it's really surprising how much it's changed, which makes me concerned about cities because in cities, making that kind of change tends to be a political nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it's there's so much bureaucracy, I think, in really established cities that actually having reform seems to follow these suburban outliers. And if cities are unable to make these changes and compete and meet the market, it it is concerning that with remote work becoming more prevalent, cities no longer benefit from people having to be tethered to them based on where they work. And when people work in a place, they spend money in that place. And there's this whole cycle of, of tax value that's produced because of that. And cities, I think, now need to give people a reason to live in them and stay in them as they age because they are competing with suburban cities that see their writing on the wall and are seeking to meet demand. I I think that is an insight that is hard for people who love cities to hear and that I include myself in that category, but we do ignore it at our own peril because not everybody thinks like we do. People make moves based on all kinds of all, all kinds of things and cities really need to reform themselves if they want to keep their population. Let, let me say this in a slightly different way because I completely agree with you. I think for a long time, the business model of cities, and you see this really, really clear in Kansas City, I think less so today in a place like Minneapolis, 
but you still see it in places like Chicago and, and, and even in large cities like New York and San Francisco. The, the business model of the city was how do we become uh, easily accessible and attractive to people who live in the suburbs? How do we run the highways as quick as we can here? How do we provide enough parking? How do we not provide enough space? How do we create enough like attractant things that will draw people to us? Uh, because, and I'm going to add this subtext, we are unworthy and not a very great place. And exactly. so how do we trick the people who don't live here <laughs> into wanting to come see us? This is a backward way of looking at oneself. And it's a backward, it actually is a distortion of reality. The, the business model of a successful city is to say, we are a great city. We have X hundred thousand, X million, you know, whatever number of people that live here. And they live here for a reason. Let's focus on being the greatest city that we possibly can for those people who live here. If you want to live in the suburb, first ring, second ring, third ring, we like you, like you're great. We're not going to like put up a wall and say you can't come in, but we're certainly not going to disadvantage or diminish the the lifestyle, the livelihood, the prosperity, the success of people who live in the city so that you can experience the city on your terms. We're not going to make it so you can drive through this neighborhood real fast so you can get where you're going because we desire you to go get where you're going. We're actually going to make it so you drive through this neighborhood really slow because the people who live here, we want their neighborhood to be really nice, really nice. I think part of the other, part of the urban business model that needs to shift or change, and, and again, I think you don't see this in Kansas City. You do see this in a city like, uh, you know, like Minneapolis, you see it to a lesser extent in places like San Francisco, New York, is this idea that we accommodate people who want to be here by building more. We actually need to get in the business of thickening up every neighborhood in the city and using this great demand for people to want to be here at all different price points to actually fill in our neighborhoods and thicken up our places. And, and the way we respond to things like congestion is not by tearing down more of the city and building lanes. It's by creating more local destinations for people in their places so that they, they have an alternative to an auto trip. We respond to congestion by actually removing auto lanes and replacing it with local transit that is not designed for commuters, but is actually designed for people who live here to get around and get their stuff without having to get in their car. If we can shift our mindset in cities to that, we can actually take this, this shift that is going on and, and use it to propel us to great things. If we fall back into this idea that, oh, our rich people are moving to the suburbs, how do we become lovable again to them? How do, how do we make their life as easy as possible to get in here and spend their money? I, I think we do a lot of, we, we do another round of self-harm that is just going to make all our cities weaker. Yeah, that's a really great point. We've you know, I always say like we treat cities like amusement parks and we lead with that, you know, it, and I think a, a real leadership mentality would be to say that you are going to focus on the people who are there first. And if people want to move there because you take such great care of your city, then then they can. But they it, it's not about focusing on attracting people as like a number one priority. The data that is shown in this article really made me think that it's time for mid-sized cities, small towns to stop idealizing front row cities. 
I, I'm sure you would love this metaphor, Chuck, and I love how you explained that before. But to me, like front row cities are kind of like the Instagram models of urban planning and public policy. And so we, like, we look at them like they have it all figured out and we see ourselves as flawed and behind and even ugly. And it's been a trend for mid-sized cities like my own city to look towards places like New York or San Francisco and just copy what they've been doing because of their success, right? How many, how many Midwest versions of the High Line have been proposed? Exactly. <laughs> absurd number. And I'm like, do you know what the High Line is? Like, you have to have, a, a, you know, a rail line to abandon first, fools. Like, you don't go out and build this thing. Yeah, I yes, I, I'm totally with you. Exactly. And I think, you know, just like any Instagram model, what we're seeing now with these big cities are the flaws behind the mirage of perfection that we've all kind of cast on them. And those flaws are becoming much more apparent because of the pandemic for a multitude of reasons. Even before the pandemic, they were having issues that, you know, we don't want to become unaffordable like cities like that. So I think now is a moment for back row cities, mid-sized cities, towns to reflect on how they are governing and how they're positioning themselves so that they don't end up like front row cities with their major affordability problems, the corruption, just all this concentrated wealth of power. I, I think small and mid-sized cities ought to make a choice about you know where they're going to trend and what their path forward is so that we don't become like that. I said at the very beginning that I wanted to keep this as far away from politics as I could. And now that you've said this, I kind of want to end with this like political insight. <laughs> Here um, we go. Because I, well, I think I think that you are, <laughs> I, I, again, I think that you are completely right. L let me actually make this political insight and, and make the people that I shunned at the beginning angrier yet. I think that small towns and mid-sized cities will really benefit a lot from having in Exodus, the reverse Exodus, the the fleeing uh, professional class actually move in and integrate into their communities. And I think some of the kind of progressive ideas and liberal mindsets, uh, especially when applied at the block level and at the human level, would do a lot for those places. I, I think a lot of what ails those places is a lack of that kind of thinking. And I, I think that that mixing of humans uh, you know, in, in the way we've kind of separated ourselves, the, the reverse mixing would be very good for those places. Yeah, it'd be a beautiful thing. It would be a beautiful thing. And I think they would benefit from it. I've always said, yeah. I, I love liberals. I think there should be one or two on every block, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think the opposite, though, is also true. I think that the big cities in this country uh, really... Uh, you know, are, are suffering in many ways from, I think, an overly simplistic political calculus, uh, one that doesn't really push them to address some of the, you know, very liv livability type issues that are very like bread and butter that I think people across an entire spectrum tend to agree with and 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 note. I mean, we we want places to be competent picking up the garbage and competent maintaining the parks and, you know, run a competent city. But those issues in the zeitgeist of local politics in big cities tend to get sidelined for the things that 
you know, get on the front page of the paper. We're going to, you know, have this big social policy or this big social change. And I'm like, okay, I get it. But like, let's talk about that after we collect the garbage on time and make the buses run on time and keep the neighborhoods safe and keep the neighborhoods clean. Like let's, let's do these competent things. I, I think there's a real space there for a reevaluation in urban areas about how they're actually governed and run and with a greater emphasis, uh, less, less emphasis on, revolution and more evidence <laughs> on just like core competence, you know? Yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. And it, like, it's like they've expanded the scope of services. And that's something that frustrates me quite a bit because it is important. There's a hierarchy of needs, right? And there's important things that must be done competently first before, you know, revolution, I guess. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it would be good if we're taking care of like our streets, for example, and if we're taking care of kind of the baseline things that cities are supposed to be taking care of very effectively and that the city is being managed very well. And then, you know, and then expanding what you do from there. I think that one of the biggest problems plaguing cities today is that they don't have the capacity to meet their good intentions. And they don't have the capacity to meet their good intentions because they've done a really junky job. I was going to use a cuss word there. They've done a really horrible job managing their cities. They've done a really terrible job with the finances and, and the fiscal side of making the city run. And so they are they don't have the capacity, like literally they don't have the money or the capacity to do good because they've squandered it by really dumb development practices. Well, and it's generations of squandering it. And then, you know, the political discussion, politicians have to promise a lot. That's just how that game is played. And you, they don't have a lot of money to meet those promises with. And so they have to be very strategic. And then, you know, you have the whole city management side adjacent to that. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, well, start building on infill lots like today, start start enabling the city to be rebuilt and then you can build the tax base to do all kinds of great things for your citizens. But we need to start, you know, strategically, you know, guiding growth so that we're not just creating more liability for ourselves. And that, I think that's why the fiscal responsibility piece is fundamental to cities. Like it is the fundamental piece because you can't fulfill all these good intentions and these promises if you, you know, are broke and cities are broke. They are broke. They're insolvent. And so the idea, you know, like I want to pay for my kids' college. I can't pay for my kids' college if I don't like prudently manage my own finances. And, you know, cities are more like families than they are like federal government, you know, big bureaucracies. Kansas City cannot print their own money. They cannot borrow their way out of debt. They cannot have cash flow enough to overcome you know, fiscal uh, downturns. It's, it's not the way cities work. Cities actually work in a very simple way. We make investments, we get returns, it builds our capacity or it destroys our capacity. And we've spent generations destroying the capacity of cities. And I, I think that, you know, th th this is an opportunity now, uh, this kind of reshuffling to, I, I, I hope, reevaluate some of these uh, these practices. Yeah, totally agree. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine if cities printed their own money? Uh, we would have a lot of uh, hyperinflation craziness. It would be it would be kind of fun for a while. Okay. <laughs> yeah, for a while until it's not. <laughs> 
Well, that is all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share, share anything we've been listening to, watching, reading, anything that's been captivating our time these days. So what are you up to, Chuck? What do you have to share today? I started a new book called The Inca Apocalypse, um, The Spanish Conquest and the Transformation of the Andean World. I A couple of years ago, I read this amazing book about the Aztecs and about Cortez and uh, just that 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 collision of cultures. And in fact, it made like my best books of the year list because it was so amazing. I know far less about the Incas and I understand them far less. And I, I've been had this book on my list for a while, just kind of eyeing it. And I know I'm going to be doing some gardening and yard work stuff this weekend. So I started this one on audiobook thinking, you know, it's going to take me five, six hours and I'll probably get through it this weekend and that will be awesome. And it's been really good so far. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting one. I am actually just starting to prepare for the AICP exam. Yeah. <laughs> so I am kind of overwhelmed. I'm not taking it until November, but this is just the kind of person I am. I'm collecting a ton of resources and I almost feel like I'm spending more time collecting resources than I am like actually digging into it and it's making me more overwhelmed. I haven't taken a test in a long time, so it's a little bit daunting and I don't know what to focus on. That's funny. I, when I took the PE exam, the professional engineer exam, I studied for eight months, like, yeah. like hours every week. And when I took the AICP, I just like, oh my gosh, it's tomorrow. I showed really? up. Yeah, I showed up and took it. The The thing that was the strangest is that in the AICP, there were a number of questions where I would read it and it'd be like A, B, C, or D. And I'm like, I know I can take C and D out. It's either A or B. I would answer B, but I'm pretty sure they want me to answer A. And so, and so I would pick A and I passed it. So evidently I, I guessed right on there. There you go. Yeah. I was like, huh, I don't think I, I think I know what they want me to write, but I don't think that's the right answer, but yeah. Well, that doesn't help. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think you, I think that if a good test for a professional entrance is, is not one you have to study for, it's one that reflects professional practice. And you are a practicing professional who does really yeah. good work, who's up to date on things, who, you know, does your continuing, like you, you, you should not have to study for this thing. But what about the law? You know, there's years, there's names, like there's I, I, the law piece of it, I think is kind of overwhelming. My recollection. And, and again, this is what a, to me, a good test is if I ask you like what year was, you know, this particular court case, I don't, who cares? Like who really cares? Like it doesn't totally. matter. Right. Like, you know, what year was the Dolan decision? It's like, I don't really care. It doesn't matter. But tell me what like it decided. Tell me what like case it created. You know, it created the the idea of a nexus. You know, what what is that? To me, and then they're asking you in multiple choice. My recollection of the test is it's actually a fair test in that way. Like they're not trying okay. to trick you with knowing dates and stuff. They actually yeah, want they're you not to like understand. asking one year versus the other. Yeah, they want you to understand. I hope not. I think I put like, was it 1981 or 1982? I mean, yeah, that's like, like I, the worst. Yeah, that's stupid. No, they're actually saying like, what was you know, what do they mean by a nexus? 
Yeah, the meaning. A, B, C, or D. And like, that's, that's a legitimate test to see, like, do you know what you're talking about? Well, that would be much easier. Yeah, Yeah. it's mostly like years, like little things like that, that are, you know, hopefully they don't have questions where they're asking 1982, 1987. I didn't feel like it was a gotcha test as much as it was um, one where like the embedded incoherence of the playing profession, you had to buy into in order to (laughs) pass the test. But you get, you get that, you like, you get that difference. And so- I th- I think the confusing part is like, do I go with what I think is right, or do I go with what like the planning consensus would be? Okay. You know, like Helpful. is zoning a zoning is zoning like a good thing or not? And they'll ask you some question that <laughs> like presumes that zoning is like the way you cure cancer, you know. And so, if but you, we know that land value tax is the way you cure cancer. Yeah, land value tax is the way you cure cancer. I'm sure there's a, <laughs> I'm sure there's a nexus there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> Great study session. Yeah. Well, thanks for You'll your time, You'll do awesome. Chuck. Yeah, it'll be great. Well, thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye. Let me show you what I'm about to do. I'm about to get yeah. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down tonight. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down tonight. Yeah. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down tonight.